Well, let's turn to this passage once again of uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, and uh, the last five verses, verse 38 onwards. Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help. Martha, Martha, I said, you're worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken away from her. It's a wonderful chapter. And uh, it begins with a rallying cry to mission and evangelism and costly discipleship. And workmen are needed to bring in the harvest. Pray that the Lord God will send out laborers into the harvest field. And then you read it on and you come to the passage I just read in your hearing about a woman who seems to have done nothing except sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to what he has to say. The Bible isn't put together as we would put uh, a book together. One of the strange things, the Christians who are passionate about reaching out and evangelism and the Great Commission, their heroes are Carey and Adrian Judson and David Brennan and Hudson Taylor and Jim Elliot. And if they were writing the gospel, they would insert into it uh, some minor difference between two women about domestic duties. They'd write a, a, a gospel about uh, living witnesses to all men, the needs of London, and the needs for us to be unashamed of sharing the gospel with, with people. There'd be intensity and self-sacrifice and exhortations to the congregation to be more bold and to cry to God for help. Uh, but the Bible moves from that world to this world so naturally in Luke chapter 10 from the beginning to the conclusion and he structures the gospel it's simply matchless. It challenges us as we study it uh, why in the world did Luke write about this domestic family tiff? <coughs> now the opening verse of the chapter, Jesus is called the Lord. And in the five verses of the text that I read again to you, in verses 39 and 41, Luke twice calls him the Lord. And in verse 40, Martha calls him the Lord. This is the major claim that this chapter is making. Who are we dealing with this morning? Well, we're dealing with Jehovah Jesus, who once was here in this world as a man among men and exhorted others to do what he himself did uh, to teach small groups of 5,000 men. He was always teaching. It wasn't simply he did something that we would have something to speak about. But he spoke. 
about the kingdom of God. Jesus is on a journey, we're told in verse 15. Uh, in verse 38, that the disciples were going on their way, Jesus went into a village. It's a journey that ends in Jerusalem, it ends in Gethsemane and Golgotha's cross and the tomb and the resurrection. And we know that this family, these uh, two sisters and a brother whose name was Lazarus, um, he, they lived in a place called Bethany and that was quite close. It was almost um, a, a dormitory village for work in, in Jerusalem. So um, I want to just put this passage into the context of this whole chapter. I want you to see two or three interesting things here. Um, I want you to notice the lawyer in verse 25. Um, maybe he was old and lawyers would have had a sense of age and he was well qualified, he was an expert and he was very confident and he was respected and this man was on a mission to sort out our young saviour that everyone was talking about and he came to test him then to put him to the test he's condescending he's patronizing he asked our lord a fake question how is it possible to get eternal life but all the time he was pushing himself forward using the question to tell everyone who was listening to this encounter between him and jesus um, that he was doing everything right it was an excuse for self-justification, probing Jesus. He's not someone who has any need of a savior. I remember um, taking a mission in Bangor University and the student came up to me and he said to me, define God with a big smirk on his face. I said, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He stopped smiling. Oh, he said. Oh, he wasn't interested to know who God was. He was putting me to the test. He was trying to show you couldn't define God. Of course, you couldn't define who God is. So, there are people who have no need of a saviour, they say. They come to church, maybe there are some amongst us this morning. Um, do we have a need of the teaching of Jesus? Is that why we've come? Um, do we need the powerful protection of his lordship to get through next week? And the uh, all the bad news that is just casting such a pall of sadness over the whole country. Do you pop into a church and other churches uh, just to justify yourself? <clears throat> you're presenting yourselves to God and you're saying, let me into heaven because of what I've what I've been, because of what I am, because of what I've done, how I've lived, I'm worthy of eternal life. But that, that's not our message. That's not why most of us are here today. Are you like that man? Are you exactly like the lawyer who's come to test Jesus? Perhaps not too much so, but not enough. 
Luke tells us about a certain woman then. And what was she doing? She was sitting at Jesus' feet. She was listening. She was glued to what he had to say. And soon she'd be weeping over her sin and she'd be anointing his head with the precious oil because she had an insight that what lay before him was the nails and the crucifixion and the two lay before him. Well, who are you like? Are you like this lawyer who comes up to people and says, you know, define for me what a righteous life is, define for me who God is? Or are you coming here to, to learn? To learn what the Lord Jesus Christ has to tell you. There are only two postures. Either you come and you sit and you listen to Jesus or Try to test him and show you don't need him at all. I want you to notice that in this chapter. And then I want you also to notice in this chapter that Jesus prays in, in verse 21. If any man didn't need to pray, it seems to me it would be the Lord Jesus Christ because he had such wisdom and such righteousness and such power. Prayer, you know, is impotence grasping at omnipotence. And yet our Lord prays. If he prayed, how much more do you and I need to be people who talk to God, talk to God regularly, talk to God often, talk about him and talk about yourself. And notice when he prayed, he was joyful. Oh, this happy hour that I am in your presence. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things <coughs> from the wise and prudent and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father. So it seemed good in, in your sight. Are you a, a, a person who thinks you're wise? Are you a person who thinks you are just garrisoned by great understanding of yourself and the world and the Bible? Are you uh, thinking of yourself as a superior and a mature person that you really have no need of a, a saviour? You have no time to cry to Jesus Christ to save you. But take care. Let me tell you what the real situation is, as far as you are concerned, I want you to know that God knows all about you, that he knows what you're thinking, your values, your past, your heart condition today. God is not mocked. He's displeased and he, what he's been doing is actually keeping you from seeing the truth until this morning when he's brought you here he's brought you here because he's a compassionate and a loving God he's brought you here to hear the truth about how things are between you and God and what the real condition of your life is Jesus says I thank you father Lord of heaven and earth you have hid these things from the wise and understanding. You reveal them 
to the children you refused them to marry. Mary said, anxious to know more about Jesus. Would I know the whole posture is saying to people all around us in Battersea and the far too wise, far too much understanding and to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. That they, they are not going to confess that they are sinners who need mercy from him. But the fearful reality is this. Not that you are keeping a Savior out of your life. That, that is true, but that's not the reality. The reality is God himself has chosen to keep him out of your life. It's an act of God. God has been in control of your life up until now but he has loved you so much today that he's brought you here he's brought you to take the blindfold from your life to end these days of walking in darkness and to help you to understand the plight that you're in because he loves you like a doctor will say I'm afraid it's serious news it's not just a sniffle that you've got. So I'm saying you, you, you must ask God to reveal himself, to reveal Jesus, the real Jesus to you, that you might change from being like the smart superior lawyer justifying yourself and that you might become like Mary and sit and listen. Maybe God has something to say to me that I never realized before how I could have him as my God and my Savior. You've been deluded to think that you're in charge of your life. But God has been active. God has kept you. Sustained the pride of your life. He's been choosing to do this as you go on. You've been saying, uh, no, back off, God. I don't need you, God. God has hidden the most glorious reality in this whole cosmos from you. And you've been living in the shadowlands until today. Here and now, in his love, he's brought you here. And he is telling you now about the one thing that's necessary. The one thing, only one thing is necessary. He's here. I brought you here because I love you, he says. And I'm offering you forgiveness and eternal life and myself. And you should be saying to God, well, that's mercy. If what this preacher is saying, then it's mercy. Don't hide Jesus from me one day longer. Show me myself and show me Jesus as he is. And you cry mightily to God that you would end this game of hide and seek because if you lose this game you go to hell you know the words of Jesus in John's gospel chapter 3 and verse 36 he that believeth not the son shall not see life but the wrath of God abideth on him Jesus said those words but today he is showing light and he's showing mercy to you. He's showing, let me show you now 
your heart, let me show you my son, Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the Bible, let me give you a heart that hungers to know me. Um, I brought you to a church where the climactic aspect of worship is a man opens the book and he finds the place and he explains the place and he really lays it on the people there. And that's why you're here today, God has brought you here today, that he might make himself known to you, that you might realize who you are and what your needs are. Be like Mary, sit down, sit. That's what all I ask you to do, to sit and listen to what God has to say to you, why he's brought you here. This is what Luke chapter 10 is all about. It's about the Lord, that he is the Lord. He's in charge, not you. He's in charge. He's brought you here because he wants to cease hiding Jesus from you, but rather to reveal his son in your heart and in your mind, that you may join this company of the little children to whom God speaks a little woman like Mary that came to listen and heard what was the one thing that was necessary for her to do with her life. And again, I want you to see in this chapter that Jesus once went into a little village to speak to a young sister called Mary. He often spoke to women purely and respectfully, he once went to Samaria. It was a village called Sakar, and he wanted to speak to a woman there whose life was in a mess. Then he goes to Bethany, which is this village, and there is a woman and her sister, and he wants to speak to them. Judaism didn't forbid rabbis speaking to uh, women. But it didn't encourage them. It was very unusual for a rabbi to lower himself to teach a woman. But the Bible is, is so different. Jesus has things to say to all the classes of Battersea women that there are. What may Jesus do today? What, may, what can Jesus do for you this morning? What a boring life it is to live without Jesus Christ. Um, I was asked if I could take a funeral of a woman who came to me with her daughter when her daughter wanted to be married in the church and never came again. And so she's a well-known abrasive woman and she came and uh, her son-in-law wanted to speak at the funeral. And so he was you know the way men in, in the world speak. He said, I have two great things about my mother-in-law. She said, two great things she loved. She loved the soaps. She never missed Coronation Street. Yeah, she, she, she loved the soaps. And then she loved shopping. Oh, she loved shopping. And everyone smiled and nodded. That was the woman. Imagine, you're going into eternity. You're going to stand before God. God says, what, what did you love? Well, I love the soaps. I love shopping. You're launching into eternity on a foundation that's sand, sinking, sand. Yeah. You have such 
boring ideas about what it means to become a Christian. I'm telling you something very wonderful. I'm saying that the creator of the world has come to our meeting and is walking the aisles and is sitting next to you and is speaking to you. He really is speaking to you. That's why he's brought you here this, this morning. It doesn't matter what you've been, where you've spent this week or last night or what you've done. Jesus is, is here because he wants you to know him. He wants to be reconciled to you. Are you dealing with the great barrier that you built between yourself and him, your unbelief? And he wants that to be demolished today. How are you going to respond to the Lord of the universe who visits Patterson? We're told in verse 39 that Mary sat at Jesus' feet. She didn't stand at the back and let all the visitors and the neighbours to come in and take the front seat. She, she, she didn't want to sit at the back. She missed some of the things he was saying. She wanted to sit right there so she couldn't miss a single thing. There's a technical and a grammatical reason for saying this. The, the participle in verse 39 is reflexive. In other words, you can translate it like this. Having sat herself down beside the Lord's feet, she was listening to his word. You've been brought here and you sat yourself down now. And you want to listen to what God says in his word. You're not being wise in your own eyes. You're not coming here as a judge of me, but a judge of your own heart. You know, that's the problem. The greatest problem that you have in life is yourself. It's not others. It's not the Ukraine. It's not the coronavirus. It's, it's your own heart. Your way of thinking. The way you retaliate and react. And you want answers then. You, you've come here. You want answers to the biggest questions that we can ask. Who is God? Why is the world is it in the state it is? What's death? What lies after death? What must I do to be saved? How should I live? You've come, you've come with questions like this, and here is where you will get answers from the, the word of God. And you don't want theoretical, and you don't want philosophical answers to those questions. You you say to me, I'm just a housewife, you know. Or a mother. My mother would listen to me when I was a young preacher. When she was um, in those days, and she came and she lived in Aberystwyth and she listened to me and she would say to me sometimes, well, we all understood what you had to say this morning. She'd say, and I feel, oh dear, I failed again by being too theoretical and too theological and too philosophical and so on. My mother was someone who gave hospitality. People came to her home. And when they asked her to come to their home, she'd always say, you must come to my home. She would say, you want some help? She wanted help in understanding what Christianity is all about. In understood to understand why Jesus Christ 
came into the world, the Son of God. Well, he lived that righteous life and died on the cross and rose on the third day. And um, then you want to have help to promote it because it's the truth and the way and the life. And you, you want to promote it. You want others to know about it and you want to have help because it's, uh, it's demanding work to do. Well, Jesus Christ is here and he's speaking to you and you who have ears to hear, you listen now to what Jesus Christ is saying to you this morning. You can learn answers to the big questions from this chapter and this incident. You can learn it negatively from not responding as Martha responded and you can learn it positively by doing what Mary did. So let's be practical. Christianity is very practical. Reading the Bible is practical. It's a book. You open the pages and you read it and you listen to it. Listening to the Bible being preached is practical. Having one living God is practical. Not worshipping many idols. Honouring your parents. That's practical. Not lying or stealing or being sexually permissive or being violent or greedy is all very, very, very practical. It is confessing your sins to Jesus Christ and asking him to forgive them and become your Lord and Savior. Very practical step for you to take. So what I've done now in these opening words of mine, I put this last familiar incident of Mary and Martha in the context of the whole chapter to see how it weds and it fuses itself into this chapter. The second thing I want to say to you is about the change that Jesus will bring to your life. There's a change and, and he'll bring it to your life. Um, you, you will become more conscious of other people. You won't be so selfish. If you know my Saviour, you will be more considerate and thoughtful and caring to the needy poor people who live in Pakistan. That's what will change. We're introduced uh, in these verses for the first time in, in the Bible to a woman called Martha. And uh, she's the hostess. She's opened up a home. And she's invited Jesus to come along. She's the older sister. It's called her home. Martha has a sense of the duty and privilege of Christian hospitality. No preacher will ever be found saying a single thing against the evangelical grace of hospitality because it's a grace that we ourselves have benefited from on many, many occasions. The Bible from time to time, from the time of Abraham, elevates those who are exercised in, in inviting people to come and have a cup of tea with them. In the New Testament, we are reminded that sometimes messengers of God have been 
have been coming to our house. We thought they were just you know, friends and nice people, but they had a divine message to bring to us. Paul exalts the Romans, show hospitality. Peter exalts his reasons, show hospitality without grumbling. Hospitality is a way to reach out and bring God to people. The early church grew largely through homes where they gathered their friends and neighbours to hear the gospel. There was a visiting preacher. They said, come and listen to him. They did not. Church buildings. And uh, oh, there was an apostle. He knew Jesus. Come and listen to his experiences of Jesus. And today we invite people to uh, watch a Zoom uh, and, or watch a series of films on the, on what Christianity is all about. A soldier like Cornelius in, invited his the people who worked for him to come and listen to Jesus. And they ate together. Peter spoke to them. Uh, it was never to be forgotten. The woman in Samaria, she said, come, come now, come, please, come. And here's a man, he told me all about myself. She, she didn't mind when he reminded her of the mess she'd made of her life. Because all her past sins, she learned, were forgiven sins. So, um, some of you are doing that and could do it. Um, ask your neighbours, ask your family to come in and uh, ask your pastor to come in and uh, he can explain at Christmas time why Jesus came or why he rose from the dead and you could have a cup of tea together and talk. In the early church, you see, there were few hotels uh, where gospel preachers and itinerant uh, church planters could stay and so they gave accommodation to them and uh, Jesus himself he had uh, friends didn't he? he had some women who looked after the domestic details of peripatetic preachers uh, preparing a meal at the end of the day washing their clothes arranging <coughs> hospitality Jesus was invited to the home of Peter and his wife. He was invited by Zacchaeus and Levi and Simeon. Homes welcomed him and they advanced the kingdom of God. Are you using your homes in this way? So here's a beautiful picture of a home where there were two sisters and a brother living. And they invited Jesus and they invited their neighbors in to hear him and he was there to speak about the kingdom of God uh, the third thing I want to say to you is you'll run into new problems when you become a Christian you can in fact start serving yourself while you think you are serving him we're far from perfect people we don't preach ourselves we want to tell you about Jesus 
There are times when we are resentful and self-pitying and bitter. And you can blame God for what's happening in your life. And that what is what lies behind explosions of frustration in a family and in a congregation. We can lose our focus. We can start serving ourselves, not Christ when we're doing Christian work and church work. And this is what had happened to the religious lawyer. He started off, of course, he said, ah, I've become a, an expert in teaching the Bible and explaining it to people. But he ended up promoting himself and his righteousness. So in the little house in Bethany, Jesus is seated and he's speaking to the family and he's speaking to their visitors. And they're all there except Martha who sat at the meal. Where are you, Martha? Oh, I'm, I'll join you soon. I'm keeping an eye on the food. Someone has to hint, hint. She's slaving away in the heat of the kitchen all by herself. And she's feeling more and more sorry for herself and frustrated that the younger sister, in particular, not alongside her, not helping her, and she snaps. Finally, she enters the meeting while the Lord is speaking. You can be a real Christian and yet be bitter. She's exasperated with her sister's selfishness. But she's also annoyed at the Lord. He's doing nothing to help her. He hasn't paused. He hasn't told Mary. Maybe Martha needs your help. Why didn't he? He preaches always want everybody to be there, more and more people to come and hear him. But Martha was distracted by all of the preparations she had made. She came to him, she said, Lord, would you care? Would you care? But my sister has left me to do this work by myself. Tell her to help me. She's very blunt, wasn't she? You can imagine the builder, the little signals from Martha at the kitchen door, the knowing looks in the direction of Mary, the cough to draw Mary's attention, the stares, the gestures, the extra noises that were coming from the kitchen as pots were put down too loudly. But all to no effect. Mary was transfixed. She listened to Jesus. She didn't notice Mary at all. Nothing could distract her. She wanted to hear Jesus. And Martha was building up the head of steam in the kitchen. And finally, her anger against Mary was changed to anger against Jesus. Jesus knew everything, didn't he? He knew what pressure she was under. He taught people to love their neighbors as themselves. Well, why didn't he love her? Everyone leaving her alone to work away. She demands concern from the Lord. Don't you care? Does my hard work mean anything to you? And you heard that, we heard it often, heard it recently. 
find yourself thinking like that. The attitude fills the professing Christian church. Hard-working people in every church think they're being taken advantage of, overworked, taken for granted by the other Christians in the congregation. Where are the other people helping the Sunday school, helping with outreach, helping with teenagers, and Jesus, especially? And she snaps. The trouble here is not the demands of uh, preparing a meal for 30 people, but it's the bondage of demands. Arthur's caught up in the pressure of all these demands. She's under the tyranny of demands. She's been sucked into doing too many things. Firstly, she's distracted. Verse 40, distracted by all the preparations that have to be made. You know, everything we do in the church, there has to be preparation for it, doesn't there? And so she's thought of inviting Jesus and her friends there. But she's been dragged away from listening to her favorite preacher. And she's frustrated. She says, lays it on that you were anxious and troubled about many things. About Mary, about how the neighbors are going to judge the meal. She has so many things to think about. This saucepan, this pot, this meat, the vegetables, the sauces, cleaning, peeling, chopping. Timing the speeds of various dishes. Everything will be right at the same time. We can we can be like that. We just do too many things. Too many things. Martha seems to have been there at the beginning of the day. Or she's gone. Well, my friends, I think I'll. I'll pause there and we'll return tonight.